0: Happy birthday, Cole. Cole is 20, 20 years old? 22. Okay, I'm sorry, bro. The older I get, everyone looks like they're 14 to me, bro. I'm just going to tell. Um, can we give it up to Mike and the whole team? I mean, honestly, you guys, uh, many of you understand that because I know your leaders in your church. The logistical flexibility that you just described this morning, Mike. I'm glad to be here. I'm just glad to be here. We could do two sessions at 3 p.m., 3 a.m. I don't care. I'm just glad to be here. Give me an amen. Okay, good. I'm already going to like you right over here, this person right here with the woohoo. Uh And uh, my name is Pastor Kurt. I'm one of the pastors at Basic Church, like I said before. Um, first of all, would you do me a favor? Look around you. Look around you. Would you find someone that you don't know and make awkwardly too long uh, eye contact with them? What I've learned as a pastor is coming out of COVID, we've got to, like, relearn how to be Christian brothers and sisters. I tell my church, I'm like, greet someone, and they're all like, well, I'll die if I do. They're, it's Ebola's coming next. And, you know, it's okay to be cautious. We want to be safe. Thank you, Mike. But we got to be Christian brothers and sisters. Amen? We're going to be with each other for a week. So uh, turn your neighbor and say, you're a wildly successful human being. Go ahead, do it. for coming to mount hermon you are a wildly successful human being for coming to mount hermon you really are um here's my family let me show you my family really quick so here's the five of them i think we got that first light there they are right there uh that is in maui and right after this i am going to maui i know you'll hate me for that i don't care i'm going to tell you that i'm going there we go once every four years with our small group and we did we did small group kind of together with um couple other families that our kids and their kids to hopefully rub off on each other and keep the faith. And so uh, the first time we did it, I, we went and in the morning, I taught them through the book of Romans and in the afternoon, we ate too much and got sunburned. And so that's kind of our plan uh, going into this. So I'll, I'll introduce you to them. The one in the red in the back, that's Jesse. He's 29 years old. Uh, he's nigh on to getting uh, engaged. It's really freaking me out. Uh, and his girlfriend's name is also Jesse. Very confusing. Then next... We have, that's the truth. That's Jean on um, the, your far right there with the white ball cap on. And then you go over to the striped shirt girl. That is Maddie. She's my middle child. And then the youngest is Emma right there next to her mom. And that's the beautiful and incredible Kelly Harlow right there. 34 years of marriage. Come on, give it up for Kelly Harlow. It's been a cakewalk for me. It's been a cross to bear for her. Um, you'll notice one of my children doesn't look like the others, If you notice, Maddie doesn't have our nose. I don't. Oh, we're going to get along well. You got that joke quickly. So maybe I'll explain that whole story later. We're in Romans chapter 3 this morning, and I did print out some notes. Does anyone want notes that didn't get notes? Uh, Right on that back table, there's some notes. I don't know if a couple of our staff, thank you, Jeremy, can grab them. I tend to... um, when I was growing up we didn't have ADHD Mike they didn't have that diagnosis when I was growing up so when I was growing up um, it was just man that kid's stupid Um, but now I realize that that my brain is a little bit more all over the place so I want to warn you I'm gonna tell a lot of stories we're gonna go into the passage we're gonna go in depth in the passage you're gonna go is this guy a teacher or a comedian or just a heretic that's what you're gonna think And so I offer notes just a kind of a way to organize the thoughts. Here's the best way to get the most out of the way I teach. Take notes in every service. Then at the end of it, draw out one or two things. Not everything I say will apply to you. I'm going to go from toddlers to teethers to teenagers to 20-somethings that won't leave your house. I'm going to be all over that place. So you're going to have to figure out and be smart enough to say, what does the Holy Spirit want me to focus on? Not all of it is for you therefore pay attention to all of it I know that doesn't make sense but it's kind of it like I said I want to talk this week about resilience and I want to talk about resilience because I'm tired people how many of you say I'm tired raise your hand or be a liar that's your two choices I can see I don't have all of you convinced okay how many you go home from work and you sit down on the couch at 6 p.m. And you take a 6 p.m. nap to rally for your 9 p.m. bedtime. Anyone done that one? <laughs> hey, that's a beautiful nap, isn't that? It's like I'm too tired to go to bed early. So I gotta get a nap to rally to go to bed early. How many have done this stupid thing? You drive too tired. Come on. Come on, confess it to Jesus right now. Let's just let's just start together as a group and be honest before the Lord. You're driving down the road. <sighs> I was doing this last night on the way to Mount Hermon. I'm just going to rest my left eye, just my left eye. <laughs> and then your right eye's like, why don't we get a close? Because you got to keep us alive. This is Highway 17. Keep us alive. We're tired. We get tired. This is tiring. Have you gotten to the place where coffee no longer helps you? Have you gotten there? It's like a heroin addict. You're just doing it to keep the headache away, but just not getting any more alert. You're just, you just want to sleep all afternoon, dreaming about sleep. Then you get home, finally get in your bed, and you're wide awake and you cannot sleep. And the more you think, boy, I should sleep now. I got a big day tomorrow. You can't sleep. See, right now what's happening is we've been in a prolonged period of of constant, slightly more intense stress. And your body has really been in a cortisol and uh, adrenalized state in which you need a break, I'd say about a week, in a beautiful setting where you could take a deep breath and re-examine some of the fundamental ideas of what got you so tired in the first place. You need to like Get away somewhere where it's gorgeous and the Holy Spirit lives. Turn to your neighbor and say, you are a wildly successful human being. Um, Dr. Charles Ridley. Has anyone here heard of Dr. Charles Ridley, the church planting expert? Dr. Charles Ridley uh, did a uh, multi-decade survey of successful church planters. And he said, "If is there a, is there a set of behaviors that makes these people more Uh, likely to plant a healthy biblical church uh, versus a a church that is not healthy or does not survive. And what he discovered is there is. There's a wide variety of personality types that want to plant churches and do that well. There's a wide variety of denominations that do that well. uh, But there is not a wide variety of behaviors. So introverts do it well and extroverts do it well. And uh, Presbyterians can do it well and Baptists can do it well. And uh, Foursquare people can do it well. But when you look at all these different groups, you'll find that the behaviors, the actual actions that the person is taking, are, are there's there's a really easy to define, and we found is 13, very consistent, very scientifically proven, sociologically studied in uh, different age groups, different denominations in all of North America. So that's Canada and the U.S. And and of the 13, there is five that are what are called the knockout characteristics, which means if you don't have these as the leader, then your church will not succeed. And this is really important because it's actually true, not just for churches. It's true for how you lead your home. It's true for how you lead yourself. It's true for how you lead yourself at work. It's true for how you lead your business or vocation. And, and one of the knockout characteristics is resilience. So the idea is whenever you're trying to do something important, the question is not, will you get tired? It's when you'll get tired and how quickly you'll recover. Recovery is something we cannot escape. And the difference between actually holding your family together and holding your life together and holding your work together and holding your calling together is often the bounce back time of your resilience. How long do you stay down? And what I've discovered about Christians even before COVID is that most Christians have been living so uninspired and so counterintuitive to what the Bible teaches us about our real source of strength and our real source of rel- resilience, we've been living down so long, we think down is natural. We think down is normal. We think down is the will of God. And with the thing of the truth is, in the Bible, there are valleys. Down can be the will of God for a season. But there's mountaintops as well. We need to understand that when God takes us to the mountaintop, it's not just so we get the ooey-gooey of, of goosebumps and just live at the mountaintop. It's because he's preparing us for a valley. And when we're in the valley, he sees the next mountaintop of renewal for us. Don't live down. Figure out what the Bible says about how to be resilient. Okay, let's go ahead and get into the passage. Enough. Um, bloviating. The context here is, of course, we're in the book of Romans. um, So impossible to pick one little section here of Romans, but I try to in Romans 3 in in terms of the fundamental starting point for our discussion all week long. The context here is author is obviously the Apostle Paul. And he's writing this. This is something that doesn't often get uh, highlighted enough. He's writing while he's in Corinth. And it's really important, the juxtaposition. He's never been to Rome at this point. He loves what's going on in Rome. He sees God doing a significant thing in Rome. He has some prophetic sense that this Roman church is going to be critical to bringing the Jewish Christian uh, wing of the faith and the Gentile Christian wing of the faith together. And so he sits down while in Corinth and writes this incredible masterpiece called Romans. It's written about A.D. 57. The important part of the date is two things. It's very early. We are getting primitive Christianity here. We're getting Christianity in its purest form. You want to know what the early, early apostles and the people around them believed? It's in the book of Romans. I love this as an apologetist, because from the very beginning, we understand the faith in the same way that we understand it today. And the other thing you need to know is, is about 10 years before Nero unleashes his persecution on the church. It's a relatively calm period in which God is inserting the Book of Romans to prepare for the Valley of Nero, the cruel Roman Emperor's persecution. And the last thing is, is it simply a book that is written about God's plan for salvation. Most of the books of the New Testament are written at an occasion or crisis. Okay, so the Gentiles have fallen in, I mean the uh, Galatians have fallen into false teaching because the Judaizers have come in and told them, you know, you need to change this gospel from what Paul preached. And so that's the occasion is the false teachers praying upon the Galatian church. There is not an occasion for Romans. It is just purely inspired by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit said, Paul Sit down in the middle of this chaotic church called the Corinthian church. This church that's actually going to cause you more problems than any other church. I want you to sit down, take a break from your problems, and just write the whole thing down. God's plan for salvation. It's the Holy Spirit's masterpiece. It's his declaration of faith. Romans 3, 21-26. Just a few verses here. One of the places, not just the only one in Romans, where Paul attempts to explain the importance of starting with the idea of faith and exactly what faith is. If you're still with me, give me an amen. I like an amen every once in a while. Okay, very good. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. Stop right there. Okay. I know the font's a little small. We'll get that fixed for tomorrow. That's also why I got the notes. That's also why you should have a Bible. I like that. That was a good amen right there. You gave yourself an A. Amen's right there. Verse uh, 22. Uh, Okay, but let me stop at, at verse 21 first. What he's addressing here is the problem of what Jews believed would get them in right standing with God. How did you get in right standing with God? If you were a Pharisee, if you were a believer in um, um, the purity of the Jewish legal system. How you would get in is two things. There's nowhere in your notes, just right in the margin. Law and lineage. I knew and obeyed the law. And not only that, I obeyed all of the rabbis who wrote about how to obey the law. And the other thing that would get me right standing with God is I had the right mom and dad. In other words, I was a pure Jew. Paul is saying here, now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known. In other words, it's not the law that gets us in right standing. Apart from the law, we now know what gets us in right standing with God. Apart Now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. In other words, this has always been God's plan, and we've always known that the law would not get us into right standing The prophets have testified to this, and if we're reading the prophets correctly, we understand what gets us in right standing with God. Verse 22, the righteousness is given through faith. We don't get into heaven because we observe the law or we're related to the right folks. We get into heaven through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile. We all get in the same way. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. None of us have obeyed the law. There's no way the law can get us in. The law just teaches us that we're sinners. And all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that comes by Jesus Christ. We don't earn our way in. Jesus gives it to us by grace by dying on the cross. Verse 25, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, his patience, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at this present time, at the present time, so that as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. To oversimplify that whole paragraph, he's saying faith is not an excuse to sin, and God was not allowing sin because of faith. He was patient and waited until Jesus died. God's strategy is to be patient and to deal with sin through Jesus Christ. Why should now? Paul's very dense in that there is so much. He's talking about the whole story of the Old Testament, how this has always been God's plan. He's talking about God's judgment and how God waited on his judgment for Jesus. I mean, this is so dense. You could write. Uh, 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 many theses and doctoral statements just on these verses 21 through 26, and people have. Why master this? Why get into this? Why understand this? Why should I examine my faith? I believe if I could just set for you one goal for this week is to start with you. Can we all just Acknowledge that not every child in a family is easiest to raise as the other. Can we all just start? Can we all acknowledge that marriages go through seasons and sometimes you want to write your book on our great marriage and other times you're like, I wish they would die of cancer. I can't believe I thought that, but it it came right into my head. Oh, Lord, help me, forgive me. Oh, come on, we're going to be real this week, aren't we? I went too far and it's only day one, Mike. Day one, 15 minutes in, I already went too far. Why should I examine my faith? My faith becomes weak, unresilient, becomes weak and unresilient when three things happen. My definition of faith is unbiblical. Why, Why look at this and really ask the questions and master this? Um, slowly but surely, all of our ideas about God become the wrong ideas. The Bible says sin is a subtle wandering. And this is why we renew our mind in Christ. This is why we work out our salvation carefully. Paul doesn't mean work it out and try to work to heaven. He means work it out in your head what's going on. Because slowly but surely, and and let me just talk to folks that have been to Mount Hermon a lot and been to church a lot. You're most at danger for having a subtle, unbiblical faith. Because what happens to us is we start getting our theological and religious preferences and pretending they're God's word. We need to go through this examination. Where is, when your faith is unbiblical, it does not have the power you need to be resilient. My faith experience is unhealthy. Oftentimes what happens is our faith experience. In other words, how we're relating to other believers, how we're relating to our church, how our church is relating to us, how we're relating to our family members who are Christian, starts to become unhealthy. When I go, man, I believe in Jesus with all my heart and strength, but over here I'm struggling in an unhealthy dynamic. That contradiction makes it difficult for us. And third, my connection to faith is unstable. So here's what I have decided is happening in the 1990s, we used to preach on campus and we'd say, Jesus Christ is Lord, you need to accept him as the Lord of your life, accept his forgiveness of your sin and enter into heaven by the free gift of grace that he gives. And students would hear the gospel message and they would receive the gospel message and they become Christians. Right around the mid 1990s, I started seeing students do this and I think this has gone through our whole culture, gone through our whole culture. They would accept Christ but they wouldn't reject any other god or idol in their life. It was like Hinduism. They would add Jesus to a part of their portfolio. And what happens is when we are worshiping many different things or we're connecting with God as one of our sources of faith, one of the things we rely on, we completely and totally undermine the strength of that faith. In fact, I would prefer it that you had no reliance on God. You would be, have more resilience if you had no reliance on God than trying to share several gods with Jesus. And again, Dick Kirk, there's no idols in my life. There's no idols in my life. Oh, yeah? Are you sitting down in front of the American idol, the screen? I sit down in front of it, turn on the Netflix. I even offer it food offerings. Here's nachos and popcorn. What's your go-to stress relief? We'll talk about that some more. I need to move forward, man. I gotta. Oh, my goodness. Okay, here we go. Um, I, I co-pastor with a guy named Andrew McCourt. Has anyone here ever heard Andrew speak? He's phenomenal. He's phenomenal. He's the greatest teammate ever. He's from Ireland. Thick Irish accent. And so um, we're always having this dialogue where I'm trying to teach him about Americans And uh, one day we were going to this conference in Southern California. We went down there and our team had rented us a car and we got in the car and the car that they had rented for us was a Chevy Malibu. A Chevy Malibu. And Andrew's a car guy, Audubon, all that, he's a car guy. And we get in the Chevy Malibu and we start to drive this thing. and It is a gutless wonder. If you drive a Chevy Malibu, I apologize. I'm about to insult your carness because we're driving this thing. And Andrew starts complaining to me. He says, Kurt. Kurt, I'm pressing on the accelerator, and she's making more and more whiny noises, but we're not going any faster. And then he starts he starts coaching her like, like she's the car's his grandmother. He's like, come on, girl, you can do it. We can get around this Ford F-150. If you'll just try a little harder, you could do it. And then he starts complaining back at me. He says, someone has financed this car, Kurt. Who buys these cars? Somebody's paying interest for this car. Most Christians, because they don't understand the need to renew their mind in Biblical faith, are driving through life in a Chevy Malibu. You're at the Chevy Malibu level of resilience. It's gutless. It winds a lot, it doesn't go any faster. Three questions for a strong faith. Here, there, I said all that to get you to really think about this. Question number one, this is the most important question. What is biblical faith? And, and I'll just this—it's profoundly frustrating to me as a pastor. How many people listen to sermons and, sermons and sermons and sermons and sermons and don't ever understand what biblical faith is? Don't really get it into them. And this is a failure of pastors. It's a failure of Bible teachers because it's just—it's just the starting point. It's, The entire book of Mark is this fight between a gospel. of Mark is this fight between Jesus and the religious leaders about being like a child with real biblical faith or being actually someone who knows whether you should heal a hand on the Sabbath to get into heaven. It's such an important issue. Um, Have you seen this movie? Have you seen this movie uh, called Highway to Heaven's Touched by an Overcoming Fireproof Angel in the War Room of Prayer? Oh, I like this group. I like this group. Sometimes I say that to Christian people and they're like, no, I haven't seen it. Is that. On, is that on Pure Flix? Can I rent that? No, it's an amalgamation of every cheesy Christian movie in the last 20 years. And I'm, I'm not against these movies and God bless Christians that are making movies. Highway to Heaven is Michael Landon. So that's going way back. If you got that one, you are old and have no cartilage. Um, What I hate about all of these shows, and anytime any Christian character is on TV or Netflix or anywhere, is the definition of faith they use is so unbiblical. And here's the definition of faith. It's a crisis in the middle of the plot line, right? And everything's going against them, and God's not showing up, and the facts are against them, and everything's against them. And people are like, I'm going to give up. And one Christian goes, I'm not giving up. Why? Because I have faith. What is faith? Well, it's it's feeling in my chest, and it's it's faith, and I'm going to do it, and I know there's no evidence, but I'm just going to do it because I have faith sauce on my faith. I hate that. It's so unbiblical. What? We don't have, our faith is not an emotional state. If faith was an emotional state, when my kids were ages two to today, I would not have faith. If you make faith an emotional state, you have decided to live in a perpetual state of middle schooldom. Verse 30, verse 322, let's look at it again. The righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. Faith is belief pointed at Jesus, not a feeling. It's a decision pointed at an object, not a feeling. What is faith? What is faith? Let's talk just for two seconds what faith is not, okay? Uh, faith is not blind devotion. That is fanaticism, okay? So sometimes you'll get this from preachers, and they'll just go, just believe because you believe. When it gets tough, just keep believing. That's fanaticism. If you have all faith and no doubt at all, you're not wrestling With real faith. If you have all faith and no doubt at all, you might be a sociopath. Oh, you don't believe me right now. John the Baptist. Jesus said there's no greater human on the earth, more successful human than John the Baptist. John the Baptist is in jail. He's going to write a little note to Jesus one day. Hey, by the way, Jesus, is it you? Because I'm not sure it's you. Or is it another? We'll talk about faith and doubt in a whole session. but, But it's not fanaticism. It's not... It's not blind devotion. It's not just absolutism. It, it's not passionate feelings either. That's emotionalism. It's not you know oh my faith is hurting because the last three worship services I didn't feel it. It's not religious ceremony. That's traditionalism. Now I want to ask: Is is devotion good? Yeah, devotion's great. Making the commitment is great. Is passion good? Oh yeah, feeling the feels is important and healthy. And I want you all to have. I want you to have an emotional connection to God, and I want you to feel it. And is religious ceremony bad? No. Some traditions we do, some, some things we do, as we go through the motions, it helps us remember and connect with great truth. They're not bad to be devotionate and passionate and have religious tradition and routine and stable uh, uh, heritage in that sense. But they're not faith. They're the fruit of faith. You can't make them faith. Here's the answer. Faith is simply what you trust. It's what you trust. You see, I have faith. Um, Allie came up to me this morning. She said, hey, do you want me to get you a cup of coffee? And I was like, this is already the most Christian place I've been in a year and a half. It's so awesome. Someone served me. And I have faith in what she brought. Because every day at three, I get this brain fog. And so I go into Andrew's office and he's got an espresso machine in there. And I put the darkest capsule. How many know what I'm an espresso machine? Put the darkest capsule. And it's like Pavlov's dog. When it starts making the noise, I already start feeling it. And I take the little cup and I'm like, oh, God, you are real. I have faith in espresso. I trust it to help me get through the afternoon. That's what faith is. Some of you women in here, you have a faith in an object that us men don't understand. It's an eyelash curler. How many know what an eyelash curler is? Okay, men don't know what I'm talking about right now. It's go look in your wife's drawer. It looks like she's got some sort of torture device uh, used to get where the location of Osama bin Laden was. And um, and you're like, I will not go out without my eyelashes properly curled. And uh, Eyelashes are making a comeback now, aren't they? Like I was sitting next to a lady at church and she had these big eyelashes on. She turned and they hit me. And i um, I'm gonna free up some women right now. Do you know? No man has ever walked into a room. No man has ever done this. Walked into a room and went, "Oh, her eyelashes are uncurled. Oh my gosh, I don't, I don't know if I could be friends with her." She came to church with those uncurled eyelashes, you know. But there's a thing like you go, "I don't feel comfortable going out without without doing this routine, right? Or whatever it is. It doesn't have to be coffee or eyelash. Whatever it is for you, those are things you have faith in." You have pointed your belief in that thing. Faith is when we point our ultimate belief, our ultimate trust in Jesus and Jesus alone. Um, The righteousness is given through